Hello, and welcome back to the second episode of Hear No Evil. Thank you for choosing to take the time to join me again today. I hope you and everyone you love are happy, healthy, and thriving despite these trying and uncertain times. I'd like to take a moment to give my deepest respect and gratitude to healthcare workers, uh, first responders, law enforcement, and all other essential workers who have been going to work every day, empowering through this, doing what you can to take care of others, uh, to take care of complete strangers, really. Grocery store workers, food delivery people, the guys who had to do an oil change on my car last week, so many people are still going strong and working and being brave so that we can still have some sense of normalcy and those people deserve so much credit for what they are achieving. Um, Additionally, all the love and respect and thanks in the world to teachers and educators. I am not a classroom teacher, but I still have been creating electronic lessons and connecting with students via technology. Uh, But my job is nothing compared to the teachers who are still giving everything to make sure their students do not fall behind. I can't even begin to explain to some people how much I miss my students. Um, I've always wanted to be an educator. This was my first year finally getting to work in a school like I've always wanted, and this is certainly not how I saw it ending. I don't have any of my own kids yet, but I love children. I'm sure that's something a lot of us can relate to. As an educator, an aunt, as a lover of children, nothing creates a more visceral, emotional response in me than an innocent child being hurt. In the true crime community, there are thousands of stories of children being mistreated, abused, taken, and murdered. These stories are the darkest nightmares of true crime, the stories most of us don't want to face. But today, I am going to tell you the story of two girls who went missing and were found murdered in a small Midwest town, the kind of town where one main street connects everything, where everyone knows everyone, and things like this don't happen here. But it did happen there, and this case has haunted me from the day I first learned about it. Their faces have never left my mind. But as a researcher and storyteller, I cannot run and hide from the story of these girls because they deserve to be remembered. They need to be remembered. And three years later, this case, these girls have still not seen justice. Their killer is out there, but I truly believe the more people who know about this case, the more likely it will eventually be solved. So please, allow me to tell you the story of two sweet, smart girls who were the best of friends and who were taken far too soon from this world. Their names were Abigail Williams and Liberty. Liberty Rose Lynn German, or Libby, was born December 27, 2002. Her best friend, Abigail Joyce Williams, or Abby, was born just a few months later on June 23, 2003. Let's clarify a few things before we get started, because we will be using many family member names throughout this story. Carrie is Libby's mother, and she lives in Kentucky, over 200 miles away when this story takes place. Libby lives with her grandparents and her older sister Kelsey in Delphi, Indiana, which is a small community a little over an hour north from Indy. Kelsey and Libby's father, Derek, also lives with them, but their grandparents are their legal guardians. Abby lives with her mother, Anna, also in Delphi. At the time of this story, Abby was 13 and Libby was 14, and they were both 8th graders at Delphi Community Middle School. Abby and Libby were the best of friends and completely inseparable. They both played saxophone in the school band and played volleyball and softball together. 
They were also both into photography and loved goofing around, taking dramatic pictures of each other. Friends described them as two peas in a pod and attached at the hip. If you saw one of the girls, you knew the other couldn't be far behind. So Abby and Libby were very typical girls for their age, but they deserve to be remembered as the talented, creative, and kind-hearted kids they were. They were loved and adored by their friends and families, and they loved each other like sisters. Libby's grandmother said in an interview that Libby was the baker of the family and loved to whip up a quick batch of hot and fresh chocolate chip cookies just to bring a smile to her family's faces. She was a considerate and thoughtful young woman who truly valued the people in her life. Her grandmother recalls how one year Libby made personalized Christmas gifts for each of her teachers and how Libby would often leave grateful, loving notes for her to find. One note left on the inside brim of her grandmother's hats reads, I love you. Thank you for everything you do for me and Kelsey. Her pictures and paintings now cover her grandparents' home. In one clip from a local news station, they were showing her paintings, and she had a Harry Potter painting with the lightning bolt scar and the glasses. She had also painted an ocean scene with a boat and an anchor, and the words, have the courage to touch the butt from Finding Nemo. And of course, she painted a happy little Olaf from Frozen with the famous words, some people are worth melting for. Libby was very passionate about and dedicated to softball. She played first base on her team and was very talented and of course, dearly loved by her teammates. She was a generous soul as well and her classmates have fond memories of her always offering to help them in any way she could. Libby dreamed of becoming a science teacher because she loved animals and nature so much. And in fact, she even attended science classes at Purdue for fun. That's how serious and dedicated she was. She was also a little aspiring detective herself, and she was very interested in solving mysteries and crimes. Abby was a sweet strawberry blonde with a face full of freckles and a smile so full of innocence. She was raised by her mother and grandparents, and she was the center of their world. Abby was known for being a bit of a daredevil. She loved to ride four-wheelers, even from a young age, and her friends have fond memories of being scared to death while watching a fearless Abby speed across the dirt, completely confident and unafraid. She was the kind of girl who was always the first to jump from the dock, never worrying how cold the water might be. Abby wasn't reckless by any means, but rather her parents and friends remember her as yearning for adventure and longing to run free. Abby was always drawn to the quiet and wild beauty of butterflies, and her friends believe Abby herself was much like one, longing to spread her wings and fly away. That wasn't to say Abby didn't love her life or the people in it. She was fiercely loyal to and protective of her friends and family. She was always the first person to stand up for someone, to go out of her way to help them, and the love she had for others was unconditional and selfless. Abby's sport of choice was volleyball, and she was also very dedicated to her teammates. She was interested in crime and mysteries like Libby, and Abby often said she wanted to be a forensic scientist when she grew up. She was also known to create beautiful pieces of art that her mother decorated their home with. She and her mother were both very passionate about photography and would spend hours outside taking photos together. Now, those photos and Abby's paintings line the walls of her mother's home, her shoes remain on the shelf by the door, her coat still hanging from a hook. Her mother and grandparents have not moved or thrown out any of her belongings since the day she last left their home. Her grandmother was quoted as saying, she may be gone from this house, but she never left. She's home. She's still here. 
Abby and Libby awoke at Libby's home the morning of Monday, February 13th, 2017, around 10 a.m. Normally, the girls would have been in school, but in Indiana, we have built-in snow days to compensate for possible inclement weather. And if those snow days aren't used, the corporation can choose to use them as recess days. So... Abby and Libby had a sleepover on Sunday night, and they and all the other kids in town were enjoying a rare day off from school on that Monday. And the timing could not seem to have been any better. It was a beautifully sunny and unseasonably warm day for Indiana in February, and Libby and Abby were exhilarated with their freedom and potential plans for the day. They wanted to go down to the historic Delphi Trails for a little while that afternoon. The Delphi Trails are a well-known and popular local area where many community members enjoy hiking, fishing, and spending time in nature. The series of trails winds in and out of the woods and include the Monon High Bridge. The Monon High Bridge is more than a century old and over 800 feet long, stretching across Deer Creek, which flows 70 feet below. The bridge is an old railroad, but trains haven't used it since the 1980s, so the bridge itself is in a bit of state of disrepair, with huge gaps between the railroad ties. It's a rough, somewhat scary walk, not for the faint of heart or those who are afraid of heights, but Libby and Abby weren't afraid. Libby immediately went to her older sister Kelsey, who was 17 at the time, and begged Kelsey to drive them to the trails. Initially, Kelsey refused. She had her own plans for that day and didn't feel like driving her little sister anywhere. But Kelsey recalls quickly feeling guilty because she had been telling Libby no a lot lately and didn't feel like a very good big sister. So Kelsey relented and agreed to take Abby and Libby to the trails that afternoon. But not before she forced both of them to take a jacket, just in case they got cold. Kelsey dropped Abby and Libby off near the trailhead around 1.30 p.m., Kelsey waved goodbye, told Libby she loved her, and watched them walk off and disappear into the trees. At 2.07 p.m., Libby posts two pictures to her Snapchat account. The first is, is one of Abby walking slowly across the bridge with her head down, watching every careful step as she makes her way over the old boards. The second is a black and white photo of the bridge, stretching forward into the distant trees on the other side of the bank. It looks as if Libby is snapping a picture of what is directly in front of her, capturing exactly what she is seeing in that moment. These photos are the last known action taken by Libby German, and this is the last photograph ever taken of Abby Williams. At 3.30 p.m., Libby's father, Derek, arrived at the same spot Kelsey had dropped the girls off at just two hours earlier. The girls were supposed to be there waiting for him, But when Derek didn't see them, he was initially irritated, not concerned. He began texting and calling his daughter, frustrated that she would not answer. But as the seconds ticked by and turned into minutes, and Libby still didn't respond, fear started to settle in. Derek quickly called Libby's grandparents to the trail, and they all began to search, hiking frantically up and down the path and calling out to Libby and Abby. After an hour had passed with no sign of the girls, Libby's family contacted Abby's family and the police. Word of the two missing girls spread quickly throughout the community. Within two hours of their disappearance, Facebook posts were being shared and community members were rushing to the trails on their own accord to help search. The Delphi Police Department, the Carroll County Sheriff's Department, the Delphi Fire Department, and the Department of Natural Resources, who oversaw the trails and surrounding area, were all involved in the search, which began in earnest at about 5 p.m. that evening. 
Sheriff Tobe Lesenby said search crews began canvassing the area and tried pinging the girls' cell phones off nearby towers into the evening, but had no success in finding them. The sheriff said they believed the girls' phones were either dead or turned off. The warm Indiana day, which seemed to hold the promise of spring, quickly faded into a frigid and dark night. But the desperate searchers carried on, not wanting to leave the girls alone in the cold all night. Libby's grandmother said the many flashlights bobbing in the darkness looked like the stars in the sky, and it gave her hope that so many people were looking. However, Sheriff Lesenby was forced to call off the search at midnight. But at this time, he said they had no reason to believe that the girls were in imminent danger and crews would resume their search in the morning. As the families headed home for a sleepless night, all Kelsey could think was how scared her little sister Libby was of the dark. The next morning, February 14th, Valentine's Day, the families and other volunteers resumed their search around 7 a.m., but the official search by authorities was delayed due to a heavy fog and did not start until about 11 a.m. A helicopter soared above the trees doing aerial sweeps. Kayakers rowed slowly along the shoreline looking through binoculars, and investigators on the ground painstakingly made their way through the rough terrain and thick underbrush, searching every inch for a sign of the girls. Kelsey and her grandmother were with a search party by the bridge when they heard someone call out they had found a shoe down by the bank. It was a black Nike sneaker, exactly like the ones Libby was wearing that morning. Within seconds of this discovery, another call rang through the trees and across the water. We found them. Less than a quarter mile from where they were last seen alive, about 50 feet from the shore of Deer Creek, the bodies of Abigail Williams and Liberty German were found in a leaf-filled ravine. Normally, this is the part of the podcast where I describe the crime scene to you, but I can't because no one except those who were there knows what happened and what was found at that crime scene. To this day, the details of Abby and Libby's deaths have not been released. We do not know how they died. Only the police know what state the bodies were in when they were found, what physical evidence was discovered at the scene, and the cause of death as determined by the medical examiner. Police are withholding this information because it is something only the killer knows, and these details can hopefully be used to help catch the killer one day. However, in multiple sources, the crime scene was described as strange, disturbing, and gruesome. The next day, February 15th, the Indiana State Police, or ISP, and other investigative bodies involved held a joint press conference where they officially and positively identified the bodies as Abby and Libby. Autopsies were performed earlier that day in Terre Haute, Indiana, according to authorities. Later on that same day, the ISP released its first major clue to the public. This infamous photo would become the face of the investigation. It was a photo of a large, tall man making his way down the bridge, his head hanging down and shoulders hunched. He looks as though he is watching his feet, or perhaps just pretending to. The facial features are almost impossible to make out due to the grainy quality of the photo, but it does appear as though he, is, he has rather thick eyebrows and a bulbous nose. The man is wearing what looks like a flat tan cap, a dark blue jacket over a brown or tan shirt, and blue jeans. His hands are stuffed into his pockets. The first time I looked at this picture, I immediately thought, he looks like he's watching or following someone, but is trying to remain inconspicuous. 
That's why his head is down and his hands are in his pockets. But remember, the day that Abby and Libby went missing was unseasonably warm, and this man is bundled up in a few layers of baggy clothing, which immediately tells me he could have easily been hiding a weapon. This man, now colloquially known to armchair detectives as Bridge Guy, was believed to be on the Delphi Historic Trail when Abby and Libby went missing. The ISP wanted to speak to Bridge Guy or anyone parked in the trail parking lot that day about what they might have seen or heard. It was not until a week later on February 22nd that the police revealed where they had obtained the photo of the suspect. Abby's and Libby's cell phones were found with their bodies and a video of the suspect from the day in question was found on Libby's phone. In what very well could have been some of the last moments of her life, Libby, a 14-year-old girl, had been brave enough and had the presence of mind to capture a video of her killer slowly making his way towards them. Police stated the video suggested that Libby and Abby may have felt threatened by this man, and that's why Libby decided to take a video. But that wasn't the only clue Libby had managed to save and leave behind. The second notorious piece of evidence was released to the public, a short, fuzzy audio clip of a man's voice possibly commanding the girls to their final resting place. The voice only spoke three words, down the hill. This was most likely the last voice Abby and Libby ever heard. Libby was heralded as a hero for capturing these two monumental pieces of evidence. Also at this press conference, police made it clear they believed the killer was from the community, or at least someone who was very familiar with it. The girls were found off the trails in a very secluded spot near water, with no access roads nearby, leading investigators to believe the killer must have knowledge of the area. Another FBI agent urged the public to think of anyone who might have seemed off on the day in question. Anyone who showed a significant change in their behavior, attitude, or appearance could be trying to hide something. He said, quote, Just think if you had an interaction with an individual who inexplicably canceled an appointment that you had together, or an individual called into work sick and canceled a social engagement. At the time, they gave what would have been a plausible explanation. My cell phone broke or I had a flat tire on my car. In retrospect, that excuse no longer holds water, end quote. An additional plea was made for help in identifying the driver of a vehicle left abandoned on the Hoosier Heartland Highway in Delphi at the former Child Services Office between noon and 5 p.m. on the day of the murders. To this day, this driver has not been located or identified. Tips were steadily flowing in, and the community was rallying to support the girls' family and each other through this very raw and real trauma. Several Delphi businesses began hosting fundraisers in their neighborhood, with proceeds benefiting the families of the teens. The generous contributions of the community raised the reward money for any new information on the case to $96,000. The Indianapolis Colts got involved as well, raising awareness about the case and donating even more reward money, bringing the total to a whopping $200,000. Thousands of people said goodbye to Abigail and Liberty during a private visitation for family and friends held at Delphi High School. Community members organized an event called Light Up Delphi, where people installed orange lights in their porch as a tribute to the girls. Orange was Abby's and Libby's favorite color. And a memorial to the girls began to slowly build at the entrance to the Monon High Bridge. From the day the girls were found, the community brought flowers, balloons, 
teddy bears, cards, and little statues of angels and butterflies to the bridge for Abby and Libby. Three years later, that memorial still has fresh flowers on it. The people of Delphi have never forgotten about Abby and Libby, and I'm sure they never will. People were, of course, devastated by the loss of two innocent children, but they were also afraid. The killer, this monster, was still out there. Police had been working tirelessly from day one to bring justice to Abby, Libby, and their grieving families. The FBI became involved in the case and offered up every available resource. The FBI ended up utilizing approximately 6,000 electronic billboards in 46 states to solicit information on the case. Two days after the girls were found, a search warrant was issued at a home on Bicycle Bridge Road in Delphi. Police spent at least two hours taking photos and collecting evidence from the scene, but no arrests were made then or since. ISP Sergeant Kim Riley publicly stated the search warrant was in response to hundreds of tips from the community, but very little came of this search. This setback did not damper the determination of the families or investigators, however. ISP and the FBI set up a central command center in Delphi where all the investigative bodies involved could collaborate on the case. There, investigators hung a sign on the wall that simply stated, Today is the day. Every day, the people working this case would look at the sign and tell themselves, Today is the day we solve this crime. Today is the day we bring peace and justice to these girls and their families. The girls' families toured this headquarters, and Abby's grandparents left an encouraging note on the door there for police, and I'd like to read that for you. Quote, Where are the police when you need them? I have uttered these words whenever a speeding or reckless driver nearly runs me or someone else off the road. Where are the police when you need them? They are here in Delphi with us. We pray for your protection, and we are forever grateful for your service. End quote. Clearly, the families trusted the police and were confident in their ability, and the police and public were assured that, with the killer's voice and image and all these other resources at their disposal, he would quickly be brought to justice and the case solved. I wish I could tell you that's how this story ends, but it's not over yet. February 13th, 2020 was the third year anniversary of the girls' death, and we still have no idea who did this or why. And sadly, we don't seem to be any closer to answering those questions. Last year, police held another crucial press conference to share more information. They revealed the full three to four second clip of Bridge Guy walking instead of just a still from the video. Police urged everyone to carefully analyze the man's body language, movements, and mannerisms to see if anyone possibly recognized him. They also released an extended audio clip, which now included the word guys, making the full statement, guys, down the hill. Again, investigators advised listening to the audio several times to see if anyone recognized the voice. Additionally, a new suspect sketch was revealed. A few months after the murders, police released a composite sketch of a middle-aged, grizzled-looking man with a flat cap on. This new sketch looked markedly younger, a fresh-faced young man with curly hair and a pronounced nose. Police made it clear that this newer sketch was more accurate, and they believe this is the man responsible for the deaths of Abby and Libby. The man is believed to be between the ages of 18 and 40, and he may have a more youthful appearance than his age would suggest. 
The suspect was described as a white male between 5'6 and 5'10, weighing between 180 to 220 pounds with reddish-brown hair. Again, police insisted they believe the suspect has previously or currently lived in Delphi, visits there frequently, or may work there. Finally, ISP Superintendent Doug Carter used the press conference as an opportunity to address the killer directly. Quote, To the killer, who may be in this room, We believe you are hiding in plain sight. For more than two years, you never thought we would shift gears to a different investigative strategy, but we have. We likely have interviewed you or someone close to you. We know that this is about power to you, and you want to know what we know. And one day, you will. Unquote. That just gives me chills every time I read it or hear it. But unfortunately, that's it. That's all we have on this case. There have been no new updates or breaks. The case is still open and being actively investigated, but the leads and tips have run dry, and investigators have very little to go on. That's not to say that internet sleuths have not uncovered some potential suspects. First, Abby and Libby's bodies were actually found on the back end of a private property that stretched all the way to Deer Creek. The owner of this property, Ron Logan, was served with a search warrant and the entire property thoroughly searched, but nothing incriminating was found. It's widely and generally accepted that Ron Logan is completely innocent of this crime and his property was used as an unfortunate dumping ground. Next is Daniel J. Nations. Nations is a registered sex offender from Indiana. In September 2017, he was arrested in Colorado for threatening hikers on a trail with a hatchet. A bicyclist was also fatally shot around the same time Nations was on the trails. Despite all of this, Nations was also officially dismissed as a suspect in 2018. Then there's Thomas, Bur Thomas Bruce. In November of 2018 in St. Louis, Bruce forced three women into the back room of a store at gunpoint, where he fatally shot one woman and sexually assaulted the two others. Bruce wore a tan flat cap and navy blue jacket during the attack, very similar to the ones Bridge Guy was wearing. And Bruce bore a striking resemblance to the original suspect sketch. ISP did look into this connection and have not formally dismissed Bruce as a suspect. Bruce is currently in custody and charged with 17 felony counts related to the St. Louis case and may receive the death penalty. Finally, the suspect who gives me the most pause is Charles Eldridge. Eldridge was arrested in early 2019 on charges of child molestation and child solicitation. Eldridge had engaged in a highly sexual and deeply disturbing conversation with what he thought was a 13-year-old girl he'd met online, but this girl turned out to be an undercover detective, a la To Catch a Predator. Eldridge had also admitted to police when he was arrested that he had, quote, engaged in multiple sexual encounters with another child under the age of 13, end quote. Gross. This all happened in Union City, Indiana, which is about 120 miles from Delphi. When Eldridge's mugshot was released, the public just inundated Indiana authorities with calls, pointing out the comparison between the first FBI composite sketch and the suspected pedophile's mugshot. Eldridge's own family have come forward and stated they believed Eldridge strongly resembled the sketch from the very beginning. The grandparents of Eldridge's ex-wife also revealed disturbing allegations with some news sources. Allegedly, and this is important, it's allegedly, 
Eldridge had a vicious and violent temper that he often unleashed on his family members. He would often neglect his younger children and had apparently once even exposed himself to and masturbated in front of his young daughter and a group of her friends. And Eldridge was known to spend hours alone in the surrounding woods. No one ever knew where he went or what he did during these isolated hours in the forest. It's important to note that I could not find any information connecting Eldridge to Delphi, and the Indiana State Police, while stating they plan to investigate Eldridge's possible connection to the case, have made it clear that he is not a suspect at this time, and the public should resist against spreading false information about him. As of right now, three years and two months since Abby and Libby were murdered, the case is open but at a standstill. There are no arrests, no suspects, no new leads or evidence. Flowers still sit at the entrance to the Monon High Bridge, a bright and bursting patch of life, to remind all those who see it of the beautiful hearts of Abby and Libby. For Delphi, the girls live on in every moment of every day, at every missed softball and volleyball game. The community still mourns, but they do not live in fear. A few months after the murder, Delphi held an event called Take Back the Trails. The community marched together through the woods, retracing the girls' last steps in a show of defiance, solidarity, and bravery against the coward who forever scarred their home. But it's clear that he did not destroy it. He may have broken their hearts, but not their spirits. Abby and Libby will never be forgotten, and Delphi will not rest until justice is served. This case can be solved. It needs to be solved. This killer can be found. I have posted all the tip line information for this case on the Hear No Evil Instagram account, which is at Hear No Evil Pod. You can also find pictures of Abby and Libby on the show account, along with the photo and composite sketches of the subject. Please visit the, and subscribe to abbyandlibby.org for updates on the case, as well as the suspect audio recording and other case details. While you're there, you can also make a donation to the Abby and Libby Memorial Softball Park, which is a state-of-the-art sports complex the Delphi community hopes to build in honor of the girls and their love of softball. I used a lot of information from that website in researching and writing my script. My other sources for this episode include all the archived articles that were available about this case on the RTV6 Indianapolis website, and I also watched their new special on this case. Finally, I listened to every episode of the fantastic podcast Down the Hill, hosted and created by Barbara McDonald and Drew Iden. They go into much more detail than I was able to, and they have interviews with the family, friends, community members, and actual investigators from the case. So if you want more information on this case, there is nowhere better to start than Down the Hill. Big thanks to Barbara and Drew for their invaluable information. Thank you once again for joining me on this emotional journey. Next week, I'd like to lighten things up and have a bit more fun now that we've done two very sad, serious stories in a row. Uh, so if you would like a say in what next week's episode topic will be, please go follow the show on Instagram. Once again, that is at hearnoevilpod, and I will be posting a poll there within the next few days. Have a wonderful weekend. Stay safe. And I hope you'll join me next week for another episode of Hear No Evil.